I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And I have to say, it's a huge honour to be able to bring you this podcast chat as I'm joined by the jam legend, Bruce Foxton, a man whose bass lines and style of playing are amongst some of the most recognisable on the planet, often identifiable after just a few notes. We're talking down at the tube station in midnight, in the crowd, the Eaton Rifles, Funeral Pyre, Pretty Green, Going Underground, I Could Easily Go On. We'll hear how he joined the band, a lineup of Paul Weller, Rick Buckler and Steve Brooks in 1974, and his viewpoints on the band's incredible journey through live gigs and studio recordings to their huge success. And quite rightly, a whole heap of moments that he's massively proud of. We also get the story of the band's split in 1982 from his point of view and the subsequent recording and release of his first solo album, Touch Sensitive, in 1984. As you know, I was lucky enough to be in the audience when Bruce joined Paul Weller's solo show in 2010 at the Royal Albert Hall for a very special night. So hearing the story of how they reconnected with their friendship after so many years of no communication is fascinating. I really hope that you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Please do share on your social media channels to spread the word and you can also check out the show notes on my website as well. This episode goes live in the week of the release of a brand new album from Bruce Foxton, Foxton and Hastings. Yes, Bruce and Russell Hastings, The Butterfly Effect, set for release on Friday, this Friday, October 28th. This is fabulous. We're going to dig into all these memories, all these stories. So let's get into it. Bruce Foxton, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. How exciting this is. Not for you, for me, obviously. <laughs> no, I, mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy interviews. <laughs> oh, well, bless you for coming on, man. I'm so excited. Um, and we're obviously in your home here and a guitar behind you. I mean, it would be remiss if there not to be a guitar, right? Uh, no, but it's not there just a prop. I am rehearsing with, with, 
We're taking the set drastically in October, revisiting a lot of the songs, you know, particularly Beat Surrender. It's a bit of a finger, tie your fingers up in knots bass line. I don't know why I came up with it in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) But that was 40 years ago. I was a bit more nimble then. They aren't props, though they're used. Hey, well, look, so we're, yeah, the time of release of this podcast, we're days away from a new album release from you, The Butterfly Effects, Foxen and Hastings once again. I mean, live and on record, this is clearly like in your blood proper, right? Well, yeah, you know, as we jokingly said, you know, 40 years, man and boy, I mean, it must have something attracted me to it to keep going. You were, I mean, at school, you were pretty good at football and technical drawing. You were, how'd you know that? I, I know, every, I do my research. I, I did love technical drawing, I must say. It was the only bit of school that I really did love. And the football, well, I was always in the B team. Football, maybe not my forte. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. This new album is something that I mean, clearly from all the PR that I've read so far about it, you know, clearly something you're very proud of, right? And, and rightly so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's taken a while to get it together, but that was like a lot to do with COVID, etc. But once we could get in the studio, it just rolled out. You know, we didn't have any preconceived ideas of what direction to go in. We just said, well, let's just run the tape for the old-fashioned term, or run the digital. And see, see what comes out, you know, and I think we've come up with, you know, 12 really good, memorable tunes, basically, with a, a good lyric, you know, and um, Russ and myself love it, as, as you'd expect. And if it does well, it does well, but they're great songs. So I think, you know, we're on to a winner, basically. How does it differ? to the jam days and making a record because that is a long time that's passed yeah. since those early days. I mean, apart from the tape digital thing, but how does it differ being in the studio in that way and making an album? These well, well, it is. You don't have to be in the studio. You know, I, I don't know what Russ has said about it, but, you know, he'd come up with an idea and just send it to me on his phone and then I would try and work out a baseline, etc., and send it back to him. So we've done quite a lot of pre-production before we got in the studio. It saves a lot of time kicking songs around in the studio. But, you know, they, they were different days and um, we had bigger budgets then and uh, we were younger and spent a lot of time in the pub when we should have been in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now it's it's more sensible. It's like you know, go to your little office at home and uh, work on it, and leave it at six o'clock because it's time for tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've changed. <laughs> mellowed out or what? <laughs> now let's go back to the early days. Let's go back pre the jam, and even pre Rita, your band before the jam. Um, what was it that made you pick up the guitar? First of all, was that the instrument of choice? First of all, yeah, it was. Yeah, first and last instrument, really. Um, well, actually, no, it's a lie, isn't it? Because I was actually, I auditioned to be in the jam on rhythm guitar, not bass. And I think it's probably well documented that um, we couldn't find, basically, when Steve Brooks left the band, because it was four piece, it was Rick, Paul, Steve Brooks, and, and then hopefully himself. When Steve left, we auditioned various musicians and uh, either we couldn't get on with them or they couldn't really play so it wasn't much choice. So we just had enough of it in the end and got a bit impatient. And Paul said, let's switch instruments and see how that works out. So he gave me his bass and vice versa. You know, he took my guitar and we played a few songs and it worked, you know, as a three piece. So we, we thought, well, what are we doing looking for another player at the moment? So that's how I, I got into the band. Few people have mentioned how your approach to playing the bass is different because of that background of playing rhythm guitar, and, and you play yeah. the bass in that way. Is would that be right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that most of my bass lines are very melodic, you know, and almost lead guitar-ish, and, and that's just what I do. Very melodic could be lead lines on a guitar, even. So you're in this band, Rita. 
the jam come calling. But from talking to Rick, you weren't that keen on the in, on the jam in, initially, right? What they were just doing covers. They weren't really your style. What was it? Bit of all that, really. Um, well, I mean, if anybody's seen any photos of me in early seventies, I've got really you know shoulder length hair, etc. And um, it was partly the image that attracted me to the jam, actually, not not alienating me, but Rita weren't going anywhere you know we were just stuck in rehearsal rooms because it was very hard even back then to, to get a band off the ground and um, yeah we just had a rehearsal once a week and it sounded okay but no one wanted to book us <laughs> so, <laughs> so what attracted me to the jam was that they had work lined up you know they were playing workingmen's clubs etc and that's what I wanted to do I wanted to perform Obviously, a key factor to that is John Weller and his links in Woking and getting you those gigs, the bars, the pubs, the clubs. Yeah. I mean, essentially, anywhere that would have you, you guys would play. And the work ethic from the band was <laughs> incredible, right? Anyone that would have us. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we wanted to do. It's all particularly Paul, you know. I mean, he's just such a great songwriter and successful in his own right. He was determined that that's all he ever wanted to do was be in a band and write songs, basically. So, he, you know, and that was a great attitude. I sort of latched onto that and thought, yeah, that's the way to go, be that confident. And obviously, this far down the line, he stuck to his guns and it paid off. Did you talk about kind of, because I guess you know, as teenagers you would do, did you talk about like world domination and top of the pops and those kind of things and like wanting to get there? We were just pleased to get it. You know, it wasn't, again, set out to that, but uh, we were pleased to be on top of the pops. And if you look at a lot of the recordings of that, Paul probably wasn't pleased <laughs> to be there and, and promote the song. But it was kind of crazy, really, because obviously we're not going to tour up to Scotland every day of the week. And it was, I looked at it, that it was a, a vehicle for our fans to see and hear the band without us actually being there, you know, and, and without having to wait six months to a year to see us once. Mixed feelings about that, really. Mm. There's obviously a switch between, like, you playing these covers and Chuck Berry and doing the working men's clubs yeah. and all that, and, you know, Ann Weller and Nicky having to get up and start the dancing and those type of things, to suddenly... <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> Yeah, we were on after the raffle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the meat raffle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the explosion of punk happens and the band's style changes. Was that something that you all bought into? You all realised that you had to kind of change and, and as a band? I think we all got into it, but Paul particularly, you know, we went to see the Pistols, I think it was at 100 Club in Oxford Street, and that just ignited Paul, basically. You know, he thought, this is the way that I want to go and take the band. And Rick and myself were in agreement. So it was a pivotal moment, that, seeing the Pistols. And, and I guess also then that signing to Polydor, and uh, was there a point at which you thought, not necessarily we've made it, but bloody hell, we're good now. We're, we're a decent band. I thought we did make it. You know, when you're on top of the pops for the very first time and um, the next day uh, your mates and their mums are saying, so you want to tell you that, right? <laughs> It was really cool. And getting the seven-inch piece of plastic in your hand, you know, the 45 in the city and going to your local pub and mates putting it on and on to the point where it got a bit embarrassing, really. But, you know, it was great that it was on the jukebox in your own pub, your, your home pub, you know. It was very exciting. So I didn't, didn't take it for granted, didn't plan it. It's just, you know, the song spoke to themselves, I suppose. Yeah, and such exciting times it must have been. But that first album in the city, it's, I mean, your sound was very different to others around that time. And I love the way how you and Paul would often sing in tandem against each other um, or yeah. with each other. But this was a, it was really clear, and this has come up so much on the podcast that this is a band with three people in it and you all 
added and made a contribution. This wasn't the Paul Weller show. This was yeah. three people who the fans absolutely adore all three of you. Yeah, I've always looked at it that it was always a three piece. I think Paul did really, you know, although he had the bulk of the initial ideas, we all contributed to it. And I would say, I was talking about it to someone else the other day about my bass playing and it's not fantastic. It just worked. It was the right time. It worked with Rick's style of drumming and Paul's songwriting and his guitar and his vocal all made it work and made it sound special. But each individual element was good, but, you know, it wasn't going to maybe set the world on fire. But when it came together, it was fantastic. I mean, what do you think when you watch that? Do you ever watch those things? About? I mean, people must share clips of YouTube or you must see this. Well, I think because of, we were talking off air, so to speak, about touring October time and we're playing Beat Surrender. And I've gone back to videos, basically, on YouTube to look at what I played, where I started on the neck of the guitar. You know, was it low? Was it down low register? Or was it up? And of course, that's the tube, you know, and, and that's 40 years ago. And it's like, I'm looking at someone else, but I'm copying his bass line. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so fast. Like, everything's so fast. And you there's know, no tell me about it. <laughs> there's no moment to pause in a gig like it's not like there's a chatty moment after every song and it's like here we're going to play the next song for you and you say it's like yeah, bang, bang, bang 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 yeah 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 it's exhausting watching let alone being in it yeah and I mean you know that comes from if you make a mistake it's like trying to get on a locomotive once you've fallen off you know <laughs> doing 70 mile an hour or whatever so they are fast songs yeah there's um, I mean the other thing was the band lot I mean you all look so cool as well I mean I don't know if you think that when you're walking back but as, as young guys you're like we, we had a great look as well yeah, it was what we wanted to, to do, you know, and what we wanted to wear. I mean, when we first got our suits made by Burton's, I think it was, not John Collier, the window to watch, but uh, that's another era as well. But when we went into Burton's to say, you know, we want three mod suits, they looked at us as we just come from Mars. And it's like, what? Narrow lapels? Oh, no, sir. You don't want that. You want, you know, wide lapels. No, no, no. We want narrow lapels, narrow trousers. And eventually, obviously, they did what we wanted. We did get some strange looks. But yeah, it looked sharp. And like you spoke about earlier with John Weller, that it gave him a vehicle of three smart looking lads, you know, and oh, they must be respectable. They're wearing suits. It enabled John to get us more work, basically, as yeah. well as we felt good. It's part of the, the gig, you know, it's not just on stage it's the build up to it and putting the suit on think right you know let's go and get get these guys you know and then so much of it around that time was also about this kind of um, you know how bands look visually like pop music rock music photography was kind of coming in from the 60s to the 70s as well so it's an important thing to think about I think as well let's talk about some of your influences on bass so where where were you kind of seeking out great bass players who were the people that kind of inspired you in that way well I mean immediately Paul McCartney and John Entwistle those two probably and then obviously listening to a lot of Motown you know 60s and yeah and Whistle and Paul McCartney not Mark King although he's a nice bloke and it's not my style what yeah. did you borrow from them the style or the way they looked the way they played or just you know what was it I mean it must have gone in subconsciously because I couldn't pick one of those elements you know it, it just looked and sounded great and so if I could come up with something similar to that I'd be doing all right there are elements as well where obviously you're writing too and you're bringing your lyrics and there was the I think it was the second single all around the world where Carnaby Street the B-side yeah you're bringing your lyrics to the table as well is that something you enjoy writing lyrics and writing songs no. like back then no not at all I, I have been moments um, like you mentioned News of the World Smithers Jones probably pr- very proud of the others 
Mm. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> not so, but I didn't, you know, I, I, every now and again I come up with something that is good and worthwhile as far as I'm concerned. But uh, there was a lot there that maybe shouldn't have appeared. But anyway. Well, we won't talk about those. Um, let's talk Smithers Jones. Um, the Jam always famous for a run of singles, often singles that weren't on albums, some brilliant high quality B-sides. And Smithers Jones is one of those, done as a B-side for When You're Young, but later reworked with strings for the Setting Suns album. Let's talk more about that song and that in- and the inspirations around that song. It's pretty much what still goes on today. You know, it's like a song of dad loyal to his company that he was working for, being so loyal for 20, 30 years. And then... When circumstances change, they just disre- you know disregard you, throw you away, and there's no taking into account your loyalty to the, the business that you've been a part of for so long. And it was happening a lot, and it still happens that people just get used. Basically, it's nothing more than that. Which well, P and O ferries, right? Yeah, exactly, big time. Not too much change. And what was the idea about do- giving it a different take from the from the B side? Well, to make it worthwhile putting it on the album, I think it probably was Big Smith's idea because he worked out the score for it and it just sounded lovely it was, it was another song almost so yeah it worked and pleased it did I'm still proud of it when my uh, granddaughter comes over she always I've got an old jukebox and she puts it on all the time every time she comes round <laughs> oh I love it <laughs> you can see a three year old pop into Smithers Jones you know <laughs> Um, we should talk more mod cons. So there was this real turning point in terms of, I guess, the critics, in terms of sales. We've had different viewpoints. What's the what's the story of the rejected songs from your point of view? And Chris Parry or Polydor saying yeah. that it wasn't quite there. What, what, what's, what was your angle on that? Um, well, they were probably right. You know, we needed stopping and rethinking. I think they sent us off to a caravan or something somewhere in Aylesbury. Might have, I'm talking a lot of rubbish, excuse me. <laughs> it sounds good from my end. Um, <laughs> Uh, they sent us off to try and write to order, which didn't work. You know, you can't force, you know, was it? You can lead a horse to water, mm-hmm. you know. So they were probably right because obviously we had a rethink, Paul had a rethink with, with the songs, and we came up with All Mod Cons, which was pivotal. It made us have a think, and we went away and came up with All Mod Cons, which was the big turning point. I think it was make or break for staying with Polydor. You know, it had to be good. It had to be successful. But again, you know, we never, we just wrote how we felt at that time. And if it was successful, great. If not, well, that's what we do. But we can't write to order. Yeah, well, obviously, make is the, is it's not break, it is make for the band at that point. And you're getting, you're playing bigger arenas, bigger. And the great thing yeah. about it, Tim Parsons was on the podcast, the promoter, and Kenny Wheeler's been on. Oh, they, were right. both, they were both talking about how you essentially, from a live point of view in these venues, like you're making up as you go along. It's like driving past an ice rink and going, well, that could be good, right? Let's book a gig there, you know, because these venues didn't exist. But you're having to find bigger and bigger spaces to play because the fan base is building all yeah. the time. Yeah, and we're doing like almost matinee performances, you know, like, let's say, Birmingham or whatever, Bingley Hall. You know, the sound check was basically, as I say, a matinee, you know, there was like, I don't know, 50, 100 people there or whatever watching the sound check, which is kind of unique, I think. For, for that to happen yeah absolutely I mean nuts as well can you imagine like Ed Sheeran it's like Wembley you know, oh yeah pop in there's going to be all the kids are allowed into the sound check beforehand it's brilliant <laughs> wasn't it I don't think they could do it now because of uh, security etc but yeah it was good times you know and, and it was nice you know after all they 
paid their money and put us there. And it's something that it, we felt kind of almost repaying them by, this is kind of, doesn't happen every day of the week, so enjoy it. So many of those fans talk about those sound checks as being such a special thing as well. That, and that connection with the fans was really key. So many people thought this band was their band. It meant so much to them. Yeah, and I think that's reflected in being spotted in the street, really. Most of our fans just leave you alone. You know, they don't hassle you and pasty you or whatever. Probably because they think it's, I'm too cool to do that anyway. There's kind of a mutual respect, basically, between us and the audience. I asked the fans on social media to share their questions, of which I must get to before the end of this chat. I must do those, I promise I will. Um, but also to share their favourite Bruce Foxton bass lines. I'd love to know your angle on these as well. So obviously down in the tube station at midnight came up. Yeah. Where does that come from? What are your memories of recording? I don't know. It's like we're saying about songs. Some songs just pop into your head, you know, and immediately you come up with something like, wow, that, that works, you know, tube station. They don't have to be complicated either to be good. You know, it's like Monday. I like, I, I was rehearsing that earlier on. I like that baseline. There's lots, basically. Malice was obviously another big one. And how much of that was, I mean, obviously it's got that Motown sound. Yeah, exactly. That's what we were talking about, what I was talking about. And things like start with that tax man riff is it influence rather than nicking rather than stealing <laughs> what was well, your you say tax man not me oh no no I've said it yes you're getting your inspiration that came about we were in the states and weren't going terribly well but we were playing revolver a lot and maybe I was brainwashed or something and when we got home you know, came up with start. I, I should also talk to you. I mean, not only are you a fantastic bass player in the jam, but there was a lovely bit of accordion on Liza Radley. Was that an instrument that you knew well? Or oh yeah, I go out busking with it these days. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but it was good to. to uh, it's, it's like the, the cello on um, Setting Suns, you know, on Little Boy Soldiers. There was chalk marks on the neck of the, the guitar, you know, to where I've got to go next. But they sounded great. And it, you know, it was pushing yourself a bit. You mentioned the States, and there's a whole thing about the band not necessarily cracking the States, flying back when going underground got to number one and all that. What's mm. your view on the American audiences? And, and did that work from your point of view? It was, well, it depends. So you're talking about when we went out there supporting Blue Oyster Cult, which is, you know, what? Yeah. Blue Oyster Cult. The management at that time over there thought that, well, if you're playing in front of 20,000 people and you say win over a thousand, it's better than doing the club days where you're playing to three, four, five hundred max or whatever. It just didn't work. You know, we went out, sure enough, a big auditorium and they're all Blue Oyster Cult fans and we, 20,000 people booing us, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> It's completely backfired and pissed us off, <laughs> understandably, you know, because it didn't sound right when they said about Blue Oyster Cult, but, you know, that's the trouble when you put something in the hands of someone else. They uh, go off in their own direction mm. and it didn't work. It was a disaster. Have you been back since we're from the jam? Have you and Russell played the States? I know you tour Europe a lot in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, we have. And it's changed, you know, the East and West Coast were always interestingly pretty good. The trouble is, we had been over there, yeah, but it proves to be too expensive. And they had this thing called holding, withholding tax, which I think they, the tax man keeps 40% of your royalties or your income rather for a while until it's all cleared. And it just doesn't work because if you've got other musicians, which we did have, they're not going to wait, say, six months for their, their wages to come through. So it kind of almost just priced us out of the market. We can't really go because we can't afford that situation. It's a shame. You know, there's a lot of fans out there who would love to see us and we'd love to perform, but 
we can't. It's just financially just doesn't work, unfortunately. I mean, it seems to be now it's getting more and more difficult to perform live, like even with Brexit performing in Europe just is so much more complicated for musicians, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, we were supposed to go to Australia next year, I think it was, or later this year. But yeah, it's just too many hurdles to jump. You know, we, we love playing in Australia, which is a shame. It's depriving people over there of the, the music they love. I mentioned about flying back from the States for going underground, going to number one. This was Concord that John went yeah. on, right? <laughs> still got the luggage tag on my suitcase. <laughs> and there is a it looks like there's a gold disc on your wall in the background there so I got more than that <laughs> yeah yeah it's, 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 there were a few I did get more than one in my whole career <laughs> well no but you were selling hundreds of thousands of records massive sales but also that buzz of your first number one single and, and any number one single I guess must be just so exciting yeah, it was unbelievable the amount of records you had to sell in those days. You know, we were doing, I think, 40, 50, 60 singles a day at the high point. And it, I just can't, I can't even, now I'm saying it to you, I can't even visualise that amount of people going into all their record stores and buying, going underground, 50,000 or whatever, you know. You'd be lucky to sell, sell that now. Um, things have really changed. Yeah, it's a completely different industry, isn't it? Yeah. Um, let's talk 1982. So at the minute, you're back relearning those songs for the Beat Surrender tour that's coming up. You said like, you know, an entire new set list for From the Jam. Obviously, there's the making and the release of that final studio album, The Gift, in that year. And obviously, the split of the jam, which we have to talk about as well. So right, I've got my tissues ready. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to bring it up, man. <laughs> what are your memories of the announcement, the reveal, the fact that this band that you've worked so hard with for, what, around 10 years at that point is coming to an end when you're bang on top? I mean, you're the biggest yeah. band in the UK, right? Difficult. Mixed emotions, you know, because at the time I didn't really understand why Paul wanted to leave the band. I mean, you know, he leaves the band and the band's finished as far as we were concerned, or so we thought. But um, it was very emotional, I'd say. You know, we did five nights at Wembley and every night, you know, we still kept to what we liked doing, going out, meeting the fans, signing whatever they had to be signed. But, of course, every punter was like, why are you splitting up? I don't know. Mm. And it sounded a bit stupid, really, but I, I don't know. It just Paul's decision. And you you have to say that time and time again, you know, well, we, we, we don't know. Yes, it is a shame and, you know, we're gutted, but... We've got to respect Paul's decision. So, yeah, it was a, it was hard. Initially, I thought, I can't do this farewell tour. You know, I came all over, oh, no, um, I can't possibly go on. But uh, in the end, you know, talked around because it was like, I was sold it on the basis of give the fans the last opportunity to see the band live, you know. And obviously, financially, it helps as well because, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be doing after this tour. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was difficult. Let's talk about the members of the band. So, you know, Rick Buckler, I chatted with Rick at the exhibition recently as well. What did he bring to the band? Because you, t the two of you would work so hard and so closely together on the, the rhythm, the percussion, the sound behind the lyrics as well, wouldn't you? So, yeah, what did Rick bring to the band? Fantastic drummer. I'd, I'd say like, you know, Ringo Starr seems to be underrated. Perhaps Rick is as well. You know, I think he, just his style, it was different. It was like we were talking about earlier on, Dan, that, you know, on his own, maybe it wouldn't sound that great. But when you put him in the mix with me, particularly, obviously, the bass and drums go together. It was fantastic. He had a different style to a lot of drummers. And then, obviously, Paul, you mentioned 
writing lyrics not being your favorite thing obviously this guy's bringing these lyrics to you that are i mean so many of the writing still stands up today doesn't it well yeah i mean since we've been doing from the jazz obviously we're playing all those songs and and it gives me the opportunity to listen to the lyrics a bit more and very mature for his age at that stage that time yeah, and Paul's kind of said that like, it wasn't like he was well-read or he had, from his point of view, a brilliant education. So it's like, where did all that stuff come from? Because these are really yeah, smart writing, aren't they? I know. No, no, you've just got to respect it. He was ahead of his time, I think. So we've taught the end of the jam, but the thing is you quite quickly get a solo deal with Arista. You're releasing singles. Your first solo album is not that far away. When you look back on that period now, how do you feel about that time? Uh, it was rushed, really. Because I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I had to be thinking music, but I didn't know where to start. You know, it's not like with the band, when you're riding high, you meet loads of other musicians. But I never actually approached them and said, oh, can I take your phone number? You know, it might be good to do something. I wasn't one of those kind of guys that, that did that. I was just focused, blinkered maybe on the jam is, is what I want to do. It's my life, you know. Um, I'm not interested in speaking to so-and-so in case it all goes tits up. But of course, it did go tits up and I didn't have any phone numbers that was worth phoning and saying, listen, you know, I'm going to be out of work in six months or whatever. You know, do you fancy doing something? So my publisher, who was the, the archetypal publisher with the big back cigar and the pinstripe suit, I'll make you a star boy, you know. <laughs> he had loads of writers and musicians on his books and we put together a band, which was a good band, actually. That bit of it worked really well. It was a good band. We got Steve Lillywhite in to produce the first album or the only album. And we thought, well, away we go. They said at the time it was uh, not just a one-off, you know, it's going to be, they seen as a long-term artist, which was bollocks in the end. You know, we did one album and a few singles that cashed in on the success of the jam, really. Oh, this guy used to be in the jam, that's Boy's record or whatever, you know. And a lot of the album songs were, were rushed. No, I had no one there to oversee me sort of thing to say, well, that's great. We'll keep that. That needs a bit of work on. This one is shite. Forget it. You know, I didn't have any guidance. I had gone from being part of a band and having a manager that made all those decisions, most of them anyway, to having to do everything, to wear all the different hats. And uh, it didn't work. It was too much. And quality control was a bit lax, should we say. I don't want to keep putting myself down, but it was just, they weren't up to it. But nobody told me at the time or suggested that, why don't you go away and write a few more songs before we release the album? Did you go out gigging the album? Were you yeah. Like a, a yeah. solo artist, right? Yeah. But uh, and it, again, you know, the songs sounded okay. The band were great. That was a, a good thing about it. The band were really good. But um didn't sell any records. Which is, yeah, and at that point, that's what that was all about, right? Yeah, but I didn't say, well, look, you know, that one didn't do too well. We're start work on the next. They kind of just wanted to part company, the record company itself, after one album, which is not what the agreement was originally. Let's talk from the jam, because I want to get onto this new album as well, which is really lovely and terrific. But this, so this was something that started out as the gift with Rick and Rick and Russell together, right? And then you played a couple of gigs with them, loved it. And then this kind of migrates into from the jam and touring the world all over the planet, playing songs from the jam plus some of your own compositions as well at times which we'll talk about too but let's talk about Russell as a front man I mean what works between the two of you and from the jam and playing those songs again it's just a slightly different take on the songs I mean he's he's so committed to the band brings his 
commitment to demand. You know, it's uh, it's just a, a natural. You know, it just works so well. I mean, just sidetracking a wee bit. He sent me a picture the other day of him at the Brighton gig. He circled himself. I would have recognised it to be honest, but there he is, like at the, the Jam's last show. And now here he is, fronting from the jam. But he just does a, a great job, you know, and he, he loves, he's passionate about the jam songs. So, you know, it can get quite annoying when they call this a covers band. How can I be a covers band? You know, it's my band, part of it. Yeah, so he brings a lot to the table. And, and you know, and so, I mean, he's just a best mate. You know, he's, he's, he's a lovely guy as well. And we get on well. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Off stage, which is a big, big thing anyway with most bands. You know, you've got to get on well, otherwise you split up. Obviously, this band has been in play now for longer than the jam was together, but it must yeah. mean so much to you to kind of be able to play these songs again and get back into that back catalogue that you, you know, you were part of and you created. Yeah, there's, it's such a demand for it. Um, and they are great songs, you know. There's gigs out there like Let's Rock, there are big festivals, and, and you're talking about 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people. Not there just for the jam or from the jam, but all that style, type of music over that, that period, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And it's phenomenal. It's huge still. Uh, one thing I want to talk to you about is that reconnection with Paul, because I was there front row, when would it have been? 2010, May 2010, Royal Albert Hall, front right. row, and you came on, and the uh, crowd, I mean, my God, the crowd went nuts. This was a Weller solo gig. The crowd went yeah, yeah, I've he never, did, he did five I, nights or something there, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. I was there every night for that one. It was the first time I've done that, like five nights in a row. And I was there, I think it was a Tuesday night. And my God, the noise. I've never heard anything like that at a gig. It was unbelievable when you came on. It really very proud to have performed with him at the Albert Hall. It was it was an amazing night for me, you know, and I had my family there as well. The hardest part about that show was I had my own dressing room at the Albert Hall, which I couldn't believe, you know, wow. But <laughs> with a bottle of red wine in there as a hospitality, and it was so hard to not have a drink before I went on. It was so tempting. You had this lovely bottle of red wine and loads of nibbles in my dressing room. I could have a little taste, and maybe no, 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 that was difficult. But yeah, it was really emotional for me as well you know so I could see the family and the mates they were they had some really nice seats and uh, just to witness what was going on there it was, it was unbelievable and a moment I'll never forget your riders changed it didn't used to be red wine back in the day did it no it was Bacardi <laughs> <laughs> sounds quite girly now isn't really, it <laughs> but uh, yeah in, in the jam days we had, I think Paul had a bottle of vodka each night at each venue and I had a bottle of Bacardi and you can't you know even though you're young you can't keep that up for long and I finished up one one Christmas at the end of a jam tour taking home 21 bottles of Bacardi <laughs> <laughs> 
that we hadn't drunk, but I'm not leaving it behind. <laughs> That's your Christmas present sorted for people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for everyone. Brilliant. Um, so that reconnection with Paul, because there had been a fallout, you hadn't talked for ages. Where did that come from? It was around 2009, 2010 then, was it? Yeah, there was a disagreement. There was a disagreement about uh, merchandise, basically. And uh, it finished up and no one won anyway, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a complete waste of time and cost our friendship a lot at the time, did a, a bit of damage, you know. It was a while before we got to speak to each other, Paul and myself again, and move on. And my first wife, Pat, had cancer and we were in Israel for treatment and he'd heard there was a friend of his actually out in Israel in Tel Aviv. He came over and said hello and then he obviously spoke to Paul and Paul called us while we were in Tel Aviv just to wish us all the best with my wife's treatment. And that meant so much as well. That he took the time out and gradually, you know, it just made you realize life's too short. It's classic, you know, but it is life's too short. This is crazy. Why have we not spoken for so long? And, uh, you know, we move on. And yeah, now I don't see him every day of the week, obviously, but we're friends. Simple as that. But like I say, that Albert Hall gig was amazing. I played on a couple of his tracks on his various albums. He's played on a couple of our albums, you know. And obviously, around that time, there was the passing of. John Weller as well, right? So yeah. Dad, who plays such a key part in the success of this band. Um, yeah, if that had been for him, we wouldn't have been anywhere, basically. He, you know, he knocked off work early to go and try and get the bands and gigs. You know, he was just unbelievable. But nothing but praise to say to about John. The whole package he handled well. What were you like at cards? Did you get into the card schools? No, because I wanted to go home with some money in my back pocket. <laughs> I think if you ask Kenny Wheeler, he usually goes home with nothing. <laughs> John there with this big pot of money on the table in the bus, you know. I didn't risk it. <laughs> a wise move, my friend, a wise move. Now, new material. Um, let's talk the latest album in a second. Well, actually, 10 years ago, it was Back in the Room. So your first album in 30 years at that point. What's it like making new music again? Is and, 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 and again, getting such a great kind of feedback. The critics love those albums, Smash the Clock as well. Yeah, the trouble is, you know, it, we're getting great comments and the new album, you know, Butterfly Effect, is, it seems to be going down really well with um, the media, etc. But it's it's difficult to go out and tour it. You know, it would be a lot of rehearsing and we couldn't play the size venues we're doing now because people say, well, we haven't really heard what you're up to. So it would be really going back to, to basics and um, I don't think we can do that at this stage. Yeah, I guess there's that kind of bit where you can play a couple of songs from it. but, but Yeah, that's what, people, we're, yeah. that's what we're going to do in October is put a couple of songs in, in the set and that seems the way to go, really, because it just, again, it, it, a lot of it always comes down to money, but it just wouldn't work just going out and purely playing those albums. The This is the third studio album of original material together, The Butterfly Effect, and I've heard that this was a kind of really creative, really fun process working together on the on this yeah. album particularly, right? Yeah, we had a change. We've been using Paul's studio a lot and with Charles Reese, who produced those albums, and it worked well. But when it came to we wanted to get in the studio, Paul had booked it out to himself. <laughs> selfish. <laughs> so, exactly. We thought it was a bit selfish. So Russ knew this guy called Alan Scott, who uh, runs the studio down in Brighton, and he said it'll, it'll work great there. So you know, obviously, I went along with it. And when we got there, the vibe was just great. You could see outside, which is a, a big, big point for us. You know, like when we recorded all mod concerts at Rack Studios and St John's Wood, and you could see daylight and activity going on out there, and that kind of worked for us. And and the same situation in Brighton, that there was a window and a bit of light. You didn't feel a bit claustrophobic otherwise. It just clicked, and I think you know the relief of being able to get together in the studio has, has also shone through really. 
with the enthusiasm we got for those songs because it was so long to get to do it. And this was pandemic time as well, so that you live was completely cancelled. Is that the yeah? Point? Forget it. And um, we were doing tests every day before we got to the studio. You know, which was when's this going to end? Yeah. But once we knew we were all right and we cracked on with the recording. It's a really melodic album and you can hear these kind of influences that we've talked about a bit through this podcast chat kind of flooding through some of these songs. Let's talk about a couple of these songs that stand out to me as well. I mean, Circles is utterly fabulous. Where did that come from? How? What was talk, talk to me about the creation of that tune. Well, I mean, again, you know, lyrically it's down to Russell, but it, it just the whole album then was just not preconceived. We just said, right, well, you know, what's the chords? We worked out, we worked with Mark Buzicki on drums, who's a great friend of ours anyway. You know, listeners might know Mark from Big Country Days and uh, he mapped it out, what we call mapped it out. It's just like, well, we start, obviously you've got an intro, then you've got a verse, then a link bridge and then maybe a chorus and we worked out the structure and then we just went in the studio the three of us Russ, myself and Mark and kicked it around with headphones on and that's what came out what you're listening to now and was Mark part of Big Country back in the day so back in the jam days yeah he's, he's never not been part of Big Country yeah. he's so loyal to the band that he'll move heaven and earth to uh, go and gig with Big Country and they're doing well now they're with the same management agent as we are they're doing well they've got their act together and they sound Really good. But they supported you on some of those final dates, didn't they? Is that right? At Wembley, yeah. I've just got the picture of the banner outside Wembley Conference Centre of the jam with special guests, Big Country. Yeah. That's brilliant. What a lovely connection. What a, And that friendship's obviously lasted, like connections lasted that time. Yeah, well. he's, he's a really lovely guy. One thing I should have asked you about on the making of the first albums with um, Russell and, you know, Smash the Clock and um, Back in the Room that. So this reconnection with Paul, what was it like to get back in the studio again? You mentioned playing on Wake Up the Nation with him as well. Was that kind of old magic there from day one? Was it awkward and a bit weird? A bit of both, I suppose. Um, what was awkward was there was, I've never seen so many people in the, in the control room. <laughs> I think they heard that, you know, I was coming in to play on one of Paul's tracks and they just wanted to see and hear it, you know. So it was like a mini gig almost. It was like pressure enough because obviously I wanted to do a good job on Paul's album. And then you've got this huge crowd of people there expecting magic and the spark, you know. And I mean, hopefully they got what they came for. But uh, that was the most awkward bit is, oh, fucking hell, you know, I've got an audience now as well. Um, <laughs> that better be good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it better be, you better like it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it, again, it was another step of, I mean, well, renewed friendship. In fact, it was, I don't know, weird really, but we saw our houses haunted. But um, I was in here the other day and I've got a track up there all signed and thanks for your work on the track. And uh, it fell out and hit me. <laughs> it just, I don't know what I'm going with this, really. But it's just a sign of something, a sign of our friendship. Yeah. But, uh, anyway. We're just off the back of the latest jam exhibition in Brighton. I know um, you and Russell played a couple of nights there as well, but I saw pics of you kind of having a, t- a little tour around as well. What was it like digging into those memories again from seeing seeing everything from right back at the very beginning and um, those those places where you're playing the local fate and all that right through to the end? Yeah, lovely, basically. I mean, Nicky Weller have done a great job in getting that together. All of them, the Somerset House, the Liverpool Exhibition and, yeah, Brighton, they've all worked in their own right because there are obviously different logistics involved in setting up the exhibition due to where it is, basically. But it was lovely to see. I mean, I've loaned some old photographs of the family and me with a guitar, being young, and then there was stuff that I hadn't seen before. 
a lot of pool stuff I hadn't seen before. And it was just really interesting and it was quite nice because apart from yourself being there or whatever, there wasn't really anybody in there so you could take a bit more time whereas when it's Somerset House and the Liverpool exhibition, the press were there, etc. and wanting photographs and so you didn't really get the opportunity to have a look exactly what was there. Were there items that you saw where you were like, oh my God, that takes me back or like, oh wow, what a cool thing that is. It was stuff like photos like all squeezing into a phone box and stuff, you know, real daft stuff and and if you can study my eyes in a lot of them, I think we might have had a tin or two of beer. You liked a practical joke you lot when you were in the jam as well, didn't you? I mean, there were like little stunts. Wasn't there one thing where, did they stick all your clothes to the ceiling? I don't know my clothes. I don't know if it's Smith's, but um, no, I think Rick accidentally said Rick Smith's shirt on fire. I'd, I'd be lying if I could remember the uh, yeah. stuff all the clothes. I think we did that to a support band, I think, not us. Band. Oh, no, that was right. Yeah, I think, was it with the Vapors or something like that? Yeah, or something? yeah you stuck all yeah, no, the Vapors. No, yeah. That's right. Just getting the grey cells ticket yeah, yeah, yeah. over again. It's a long while ago. I'm surprised I could remember what I do remember. Was there a habit of splitting trousers from you too? <laughs> I think Rick said this. Uh, again, I, don't know. I think I thought that was more Rick. I've still got some of those suits and I can't even get the wrists in the leg hole, let, let alone your leg. So skinny. I mean, I don't think I'm too bad now for the age, but um, boy, those those suits were tight. <laughs> I think some of them are shrunk as well because they're wearing them every night. <laughs> oh, they could have done. They could have done, particularly the ones in America when we were over there. We played CBGBs, you know, at the clubs playing in New York for upcoming bands. We were doing two shows a day. We did a matinee and then the main show. We only had one suit each for the whole tour. Two shows for 14 nights or so. They were minging it, you know. <laughs> you know. So I think we probably didn't even pack them to bring them home, you know. <laughs> Oh dear. Hey, look, I'm going to ask you some of the questions from the fans before you go first. All right. So Sean Wilson on Twitter, what was the one thing you remember the most from being in the jam, good or bad? What stands out the most? Well, probably going underground, going straight at number one. It's difficult because fortunate enough to have a lot of memorable moments. So, you know, going underground, going in at number one, start we spoke about earlier, I probably gave him about three answers earlier on. Proud moment of my mum's friend saying to my mum, sweet boy in telly last night, you know, and that convinced my mum that I'm on to a winner, you know, because she didn't want me to leave work, basically. But different moments and far too many to list them all. Thing is, having a number one single was such a big thing, wasn't it? That was a real yeah. event. And people... Listen to the charts and wanted to wait to see what was number one and all that, didn't they? Yeah, I think that's going in at number one, going underground, been done since the Beatles or something like that, straight in. And then afterwards, it seemed to flow that everybody's having number ones, but a proud moment. Sean Farrell, did he come up with all those standout bass lines himself or did Paul sometimes have them worked out? So, for instance, in the crowd, tube station starts. No. This is all you? Yeah, I'm going to take it anyway. Rigsby1734 on Twitter. How come he never ages? <laughs> I wish. Is there a uh, painting in the loft? <laughs> yeah, the Dorian Gray, yeah. No, I mean, maybe these glasses are like from Specsavers because they're 2% so I can see you, basically. <laughs> uh, Steve Hinders, please ask Bruce if he has any fond memories, favourite gigs with the jam in the States. So we talked about crack in America. Were there any kind of gigs that really stood out? Were there any periods where actually it was working, it was fun, it was good? Yeah, well, like I mentioned a little while ago, the CBGB in New York was the club to go to a bit like the Marquee over here or whatever and the Ramones turned up one afternoon and night Joey Ramone came backstage prior to us I think either we'd been on or done our gig but we had a practice amp in the studio and he sat on that and he was so pissed that uh, not long after sitting on it, he fell off it completely. <laughs> Just a pile on the floor in the dressing room. So that, that was kind of a, an amusing moment. Anyway, 
<laughs> Matt Mead, he says, in terms of bass players, Bruce is up there with Entwistle, McCartney and Mike Evans from The Action. If Bruce wasn't in the jam or from the jam, which band would he like to play with? That's a good oh. question, isn't it? The Who. Well, he says, in my opinion, he, he should have played with The Who. Oh, that's weird, isn't it? Isn't that strange? Love it. Yeah, I was uh, at the time, you know, when John Wentz and Russell Stanley passed away, I thought someone might phone me up just to ask. <laughs> but nothing? It, no, nothing. I just sat, sat at the bar waiting for that phone to ring. Because <laughs> yeah. you played with Stiff Little Fingers for a long, like 15, 15 years, right? 15 years, yeah, Nanum Boy. Yeah, so ironically. I mean, that was chance meeting Jake, Jake Burns of Fingers, you know, we because we were similar ilt and certainly in the same span of punk, new wave, etc. And our past were cross- crossing quite a lot in those days, you know, they've just played Newcastle City or we were playing it the next night or whatever. He said that Ali McMorley, the bass player, was leaving and would I be interested? And uh, I'll jump forward, by the way, a bit. And would I be interested? And I said, well, yeah, because, you know, we get on as drinking pals really well. I went to see them at Brixton Academy and there was 5,001 people there for the finger show. So I said, well, I have to come along and see what you're all about, you know. And uh, there's one person was me that didn't know really any of their songs. Um, for some reason, they'd kind of escaped me during that period. But eventually, anyway, I joined them, had 15 years with them. But I had to get off that express train because I think um, it would have been too damaging for my health, put it that way, if I'd have carried on. <laughs> Well, you recorded multiple albums. I mean, there were live dates all over the planet with those guys and, and new songs as well. So they were writing new songs too. And yeah. The other One of the other questions was around production as well. So let me find it. So this was um, from Percy Hepworth on Twitter. He said, the productions on qualities on Seesaw sound different to other jam songs. Now, look, I appreciate we're going back over four years here, Bruce. He says, <laughs> he says, at least to my ears, they sound different. And Bruce sings lead, though it was written by Paul. Did Bruce produce it? What's the story either way regarding the sound and his lead vocal on that song, Seesaw? How much can you remember about that one? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm sure we gave it to, um, I'm trying to think of the band name, but there was another young upcoming band that recorded it. Again, it's a long while ago. There was, yeah, there was. You're right, somebody else did record it. right. I can't remember. Chris Mudger 068 on Twitter. I bumped into Paul Weller in Liberties and wanted to say something, bottled it. I shared a lift with Bruce at the Somerset House exhibition and bottled it again. He's not very sociable, is he? Who, if anyone, has Bruce been starstruck by? Well, I've got a little tower, but um, we were recording... Uh, the gift at uh, Air Studios in well, at Oxford Circus. Finished for the day, I came down in the lift and it was winter. In front of me, a couple of girls and they're walking towards me. And I'm thinking, oh, no, yeah, I don't really want to, it's miserable, I want to get home. I don't want to be caught chatting and signing autographs now. I'm knackered, I've been in the studio all day. So I'm walking towards them and they just carried on straight past me. And I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> I was ready with my pen in my hand and they, they, they went straight past me and I said, ah, and I turned around to have a look where they were going and Paul McCartney was coming up the lift. <laughs> Fair enough. He was doing Total War, I think, up there. And, oh, right. Uh, wow, cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. Have you met McCartney? Yeah, well, his, his wife then, who was a photographer, Linda McCartney, she was taking photographs up at the studio of various people and I've got a shot she took of me basically so it's a bit like I've got this photograph of me on my office desk (laughs) it's on the wall upstairs anyway (laughs) because it just meant a lot you know that that was the connection with both of them 
Yeah, we said hello to Paul, obviously. But Linda wanted to take a photograph of me, which is on the wall, and it probably fits in with one of your other listeners' queries about why doesn't the age. I'm pleased with it because I look so good in it. Probably <laughs> 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 at my peak. But no, it's just a, a lovely thing that, you know, it's there because Linda McCartney took it more than anything else. That's really nice. Yeah, how lovely. Uh, Leapy Lee says, if you get the chance, ask Bruce which is his favourite guitar out of the Rickenbacker, the Fender Precision, the Aria or the Epiphone basses that he's played over the years. Well, it's difficult because we use it for different reasons because they're tonal qualities or whatever, but like the Aria was used on that entertainment. The Epiphone was on Star and then, you know, the Fender and the me, Ricky. It was always a, a wrestling match with those two, you know, which one to use. I love to look at a Rickenbacker and it's got a narrow neck and I've got small fingers so I can get my hand around the neck quite comfortably. But then the precision has uh, got more balls, basically. It's got more bottom end and more of a punch. So it was mod cons that I switched to the Fender Precision because it's just the tonal quality. And, you know, it was sacrilege, really, but we had a company giving us Rickenbackers at the time. And I was trying to get a Fender sound out of Ricky. So we were messing about taking the pickups. It never works, you know, putting Precision pickups in a Rickenbacker. It just doesn't work. It's just the way that the guitars are made. The Ricky, the neck goes straight down and straight through the body. So you've got the neck in the middle all the way down where the fender is just bolted on at the top so it's never going to work you know I've still got a couple of rickets that might see the light of day maybe this coming tour I could use them on a couple of tracks just for sentimental reasons how much are you leaping about on the live gigs these days? Because back in the day, I mean, there was a lot of leaping. It was like a very... Well, not as high as, you know, we spoke earlier about um, watching Did It Freak Me Out or about looking younger, you know, the days when you look, you were young. And there's some serious height achieved in a lot of the videos there. Now, there's a bit hit and miss, you know, I'll try. Sometimes it works. Sometimes I get about an inch off the ground, you know. <laughs> um, and to be fair, to be fair... I've done the right knee over those leaps. I've not got much of the cartilage or the, the bit that goes between the bones that's uh, eroded away and mainly due to me trying to leave up down like a nutter for 40 years. <laughs> Yolanda Charles was on the podcast who bass player and played with Paul's solo band and she was talking about like how hard it is to play bass like the beginning like your beginning your fingers are bleeding at times and stuff like that yeah. do you play the instrument most days or do you kind of you know come back to it after a few weeks how do you get yourself match fit for playing that instrument we're just playing as simple as that I mean it's funny you mention that because I've never had an issue with once you get over that stage of your fingers hardening. And, you know, we were so busy when we were playing in jam days, almost seven, seven shows a, a week, you know. They did soften up over the COVID period because that was like two years of doing nothing. It was almost like starting again because, you know, you run a few songs and probably Russell would answer this better. It's even harder on a six string because they're like particularly the top E string. It's like cheese wire and it would really cut into your tops of your fingers. So you just had to grin and bury it again. But that was the time over COVID that, you know, didn't bother playing much because there was nothing to play for. It makes total sense. Let's talk about Russell again before we wrap up. So front man of From The Jam, a collaborator, so creative working with you on this, this new album as well. You both had your health scares this year. I mean, he had... Yeah a heart attack earlier on this year you've gone through a cancer scare yourself do you start looking at yeah, this I, uh, industry and these things differently in that way when that happens yeah basically we've because as it, everybody's aware that we are a real hard working band and we've enjoyed it it's only every now and again that you think oh god you know I've got another gig tonight am I going to get through it I'm exhausted but when you had like a health scare like Russ 
and myself, it's maybe time to ease up a bit, you know, put the brakes on a little. So I think come October onwards, we're, I think, maximum two shows a week, which sounds pathetic, but they are energetic shows. And again, you know, the, the, the travelling is a killer as well. If you have some sort of, it's like five, six hours to get to the show, then you've got to perform, then you've got to drive another four hours to the next show or whatever. You know, my, my wife makes me laugh sometimes when she said, you've only got to sit there in the car, you're not driving, but it doesn't seem to matter. You know, it's still exhausting. So yeah, because of those, and they're serious health scares, you know, that we're thinking, let's ease up a bit and see how it goes, you know. Does that frustrate you? Uh, it concerns me. It concerns you when you've had a cancerous lymph node removed, you know, it's like, wow, um, you know, if I get through this, okay, I, you know, we do need to ease up a bit. More of a home life, you know, our agent agrees totally. And, you know, we can afford to do it if we want to. One thing you've never really done is tell your story. I know there was a book with you and Rick yeah. talking about the jam and stuff, but I mean, I guess you've been approached and people must have asked you to kind of tell your life story, not just with the jam, but all the, all the kind of stories that we've talked about. Is that something that would appeal? Is that something you'll ever get round to, do you think? I'd have to have a ghostwriter, maybe yourself. Oh, well, we can chat <laughs> about that, Bruce. You know, to uh... dig into some of those memories and remind you of what actually happened, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because a lot of them drinking stories you know certainly not going to get into the backstabbing because a lot of over the years yeah about would I tell my story and they want me to like slag off Rick or slag off Paul or whatever you know it's like there's no way there's no way I would dream of doing that there's nothing to slag off about anyway a book I said I never say that never in it but um, it's not top of the list you know we've got plenty to be getting on with is there an element where you'd like the three of you to get not the jam not back together, but the three of you to get back in a room again and just have a cup of tea and a chat. Well, thank you to mention that because, you know, there was the Brighton exhibition. There was the Somerset House exhibition, which I was there with Paul and we got on great. Rick was, he said he had a book signing to go to, but it would have been an ideal opportunity because we're not going to have a go at anyone. It would just be lovely, like you say, lovely for the fans to see that photograph of the three of us together again, just chatting. You know, no mention of gigging or anything else or where you've been for the last, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was an ideal moment that if he could just turned up and come in and said hello, it would have been fantastic. I'd have loved it. I'm sure Paul would. He seems to avoid it somehow, which is a shame. Yeah, it's a shame, I have to say, because there's so much history there. You guys have left such a, an amazing legacy of music that, is yeah. I mean, here we are 40 years on from... Beat Surrender, right? And those that, that final album. And people love this, absolutely love this band. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, you know, chatting to you, are getting frustrated about it because that's all you got to do is stick your head in solo and go, you know, if you want. But yeah, m- maybe it'll happen. Maybe a special point. edition of this podcast with the three of you. We'll see what happens. Final question from the fans. Gareth Bradburn, he says, although a long time has passed, does he now think that Paul was right to split up the jam when he did, or does he still think they should have continued further? It was good to go out at the top, album-wise and single-wise. I can appreciate that, but I felt that we had more to offer still. You know, and don't ask me what, because I don't know, but I didn't think we'd run our course. But as we said, you know, Paul obviously wanted to change direction, something that I wouldn't have been happy with anyway. It's a shame. There you are. Yeah. You weren't big into the Star Council then? Not really. <laughs> I think not, so. not really my cup of tea, did they say? So he probably made the right choice, Paul did, you know, that knowing that 
I wouldn't be happy doing what he wants to do next. So he'll move on. Hey, look, Bruce, this has been so lovely. Really lovely to spend time with you. Thank you so much for coming on. I have two final questions for you before you go, okay? So everybody on the podcast gets asked the same questions. Obviously, it's the Paul Weller fan podcast. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the star council, or solo. So uh, is it called Broken Stone? No, that's a lovely song. He's very talented. There's another single that was released, but he was so at a period of being so prolific, I couldn't keep up. Like, it's got another record out every day. It's like another record out. But it was another track, two or three tracks, um, singles a while ago. I can't remember the name of it. A lot of piano, but maybe you could research oh, it. Like you, you do something to me and things like that. Yes. You know, they're beautiful. He's a very talented guy, as we said. Do you talk about these kind of things, about what drives you both on to continue to want to be in this industry and still making music, continue doing this? Well, as I say, Paul's had that mentality from day one of, you know, being successful. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Bruce, is to meet lovely people like yourselves who've had these amazing careers and obviously these links with Paul as well. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, what should I ask him? <laughs> question I get asked is how long are you, you going to be doing it for? Well, I didn't think I'd be doing it for 40 years, you know, plus, but here we are. And I still want to do it. You know, and to be honest, what else am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I bet if you could, yeah, if you could meet that kid, that young kid um, in Shearwater playing around in your bedroom with your guitar and that and go, this is what you're going to do. This is your life and how it's going to span out. It'd be like, no, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, hey, we had fun. Hey, look, this has been so lovely. We're on the eve of this album release, and it's been a while where we've been kind of waiting because of everything going on with yeah. the health issues we talked about, with COVID, all that stuff, right? Release, I mean, literally releasing it like a butterfly into the world. What does it feel like when you're kind of on the eve of an album release and it's going to be out there and the fans will be able to hear it? It is exciting. I mean, like we said earlier, technology is different now because it's all out there in the ether or whatever. You don't really see it so much. It'd just be interesting to see what it does do. I'm very proud of it. And then Russ is. Uh, so we've done our bit. And if the audience out there love it, then great. And so far, the, the report is that most people tend to think it's fantastic. Here we are. We keep going. Bruce Foxen, thank you so much for joining me. And I've loved every second of this. Cheers. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. Well, there you go. Bruce Foxen's first appearance on the podcast. I'm hoping not the last because there's plenty more stuff that we can dig into as well in future episodes. But what a joy. Bruce Foxton, Russell Hastings, the album The Butterfly Effect is released on Friday, October 28th, this coming Friday. Foxton and Hastings, get yourself on my website for more details. It's a lovely listen. More details in the show notes for this podcast. Just go to paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, whilst you're there, if you've enjoyed this chat, you can head into my store. We have exclusive merchandise, including the brand new Paul Weller Fan Podcast exclusive mug. Plus, if you want, you can buy a virtual coffee as well. All gratefully received, gratefully appreciated. Doing that this week. Hello to you, Ewan, Andy Liddle. Hi to you, sir. Howard, Jen, Brian. Jane the Jam Tart with a heart, Stu Burns, Dick Cherry, Colin, Rachel the Jam Tart, Stephen Cartwright, Nicholas George Keane, Paul Hubbard, Alex McLaughlin, who says no pun intended, the David Cracknell episode was another cracker. Bless you, mate. Duncan, cheers to you as well. Thank you for all your virtual coffees. Just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com, if you want to get involved. Now, here's something very special. On Friday, we have another bonus episode of the podcast as well. The release of a brand new Paul Weller album, Will of the People, 
We're going to celebrate as well. A little surprise coming up on Friday, so make sure you check wherever you get your podcasts with a brand new bonus episode. And then next week, an incredible chat with a chap called Jeremy Murray Wakefield. Now, you might not know him as that name. You'll hopefully know him as Jezar. Yes, check your Style Council sleeve notes. This guy has an amazing story to tell from his time at Solid Bond as an engineer, the Style Council, Jezar, on a brand new episode of the podcast next week. Subscribe, follow wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so through the website or on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Facebook and Instagram, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.